Listener Production. Just before we get rolling, in regards to this episode, there is discussions around mental health and sensitive conversations around suicide. So have a listen yourself, potentially before you get your kids to listen to it. And most importantly, if you or someone close to you needs any help, please reach out to someone or get in touch with the professionals at Beyond Blue. Howdy crew, you are listening to episode 166 of the Howie Games Part B, featuring dual code international Matt Rogers. Do yourself a favour and get your eyeballs into Matt's phenomenal new book, Matt Rogers, A Father's Son, Family, Football and Forgiveness. On we go. You switched to rugby union, Matty, and for me personally, being growing up in the southern states, um, I, I, I say this, honestly, when, when you and Wendell Saylor crossed and started playing for the Wallabies, all of a sudden he's just, like you were just zipping all around the place and Wendell was Wendell personality on and off and that that's when I fell in love with watching the Wallabies. Um, and, and I went back and looked at your first game against the All Blacks and I nearly fell off my chair because I still follow it, but it, it was the last time Australia, the Wallabies, won the Bledisloe Cup. It was in... 20 years ago. 2002! <laughs> Yes. 2002, I Matty. I, I knew we'd been getting a belting for a long time, but t- tell me about your first um, rugby union try because it was these, right, these boys from rugby oh. league are coming across, this is what they're going to bring, and then that's what you brought. You brought showtime and speed and yeah. pace and, and sizzle. Sizzle. This is yeah, what you well, brought, Matty. Well, you brought sizzle. Well, I mean, we, we, didn't, we didn't come into a bad side. They, they, they were a successful side, you yes. know, World Cup champions and... You know, Bloodfly Cup champions a few years before. So, I mean, there was a risk for us. Like, if we went over there and we didn't win the Bloodfly, like, like we've actually made, have we made the side worse? You know, like yeah. the All Blacks were sort of in this rebuilding phase, and they, you know, they, they were a, they were a good side, man. You know, the, the All Blacks were a tough side to beat. Um, but I remember just getting onto the field with about twenty minutes to go, and that. That deciding Bledisloe in Sydney, um, you know, they, it was it was back in the days when you know they'd eighty thousand sell out in five minutes, so you just couldn't get a seat to the game. And um, I just remember, with about ten minutes to go, we put this play on, and and, the, and sort of like Sydney heads opened up for me, and the balls popped up to me, and I and I snatched at it and I knocked it on. Now this is the place to attack from set piece. Advantage back. Oh, they've really stuffed it up. Matt Rogers was. Through unopposed if he held the ball. But and I thought, oh, I've just blown the blood <laughs> You know, and I, and I just, I'll never forget, I've never really had this feeling before because I just feel like um, I've never really had, like I've always like tried to play the game hard and like in, it's not like when you go out and play a game of rugby league or rugby union, it's not like, oh, I hope it doesn't get hurt. I, don't, I hope it doesn't hurt today. Like you know you're going to get hurt. It's just, you just don't know how much. <laughs> so it's sort of like, oh, it's going to hurt. But <laughs> Shape, it's not too bad, you know. And um, I remember after I dropped that ball, just vividly thinking to myself, like just clear as days, like, I will run into anything to save this game. I, I just remember thinking, I've just blown it. I will do anything. I'll sacrifice my body in any way, shape, or form I have to to, to get this to win this game. And um, we, we started to make some inroads, and we got down near their try line, and I could just see. Like, I'm looking for the biggest, slowest guy I can find to run it. Like, that's, like I don't want to run guys my size because they're as fast as me and they can catch me. So <laughs> I'm always looking for the big, tired, six-foot-five or, you know, 
you know, six foot, 130 kilo bloke. They're the guys you want to run at. And because um, you just beat them in footwork. And, and I, I could see it lining up perfectly for me in front of me. And I just, I think it was Chris Jack. He was sort of like pushing out. And I knew he would have had to come out. Like I would have just run around him if he didn't come out at me hard. And as soon as he came out off the line, uh, Georgie Gregan threw me, threw me what they call an outball. So, I, so it took me out to my left. And as I've got it, Chris Jack's flying out to try and hit me. And I just jagged off, stepped off my left foot and just got inside and he just put the ball over the try line. He's Rogers! I just, I've never heard a rule like it, you know, like it just, for a, a moment in time, this is like everything stood still. The, the noise was just like deafening. And to, to be able to be in that situation, and, you know, I grew up playing rugby and, and, I, and, I, and I wanted to play for, for the Wallabies and, and to actually get the chance to go back later in life, to have that opportunity and then to be able to produce on one of the biggest stages. Um, was pretty amazing. It's pretty emotional. Uh, yeah, I just uh, made it. It's a good memory to have. You're giving me goosebumps, and then obviously it came down. Uh, it came down to Matty Burke, the great Matty Burke. Well, I, I give him a hard time about it because, like, I scored literally ten meters next to the left upright, and he's a right footer, so he should just knock it over. Like, you could, th- I could have thrown it over. Anyway, he hit the bloody upright, banged into the post, so, didn't he? And now Burke to put Australia back in front. Straight as a dive, but it's hit the upright and back into the field of play. No goal. Right off the upright. So we're down by a point. And I'm like, you ass. Like, fair dinkum. And we go back to... And I, and I look at that game, right? Like, if we, we're still about six or seven minutes to go at that point. Yeah. And if we're up by one, which you would have been as Burke to kick that goal... Do we play a different style of rugby? Do we go into our shell a bit, you know, and, and try to protect the lead? And that is the most dangerous way to play the All Blacks. So they will hurt you when you play that style of rugby. Anyway, we, could, we couldn't afford to. We were down by a point. We ended up pushing down field. We got ourselves into position and um, we got a penalty. And it was in, it was it was same similar spot to what it was where he missed, but it was about three or four mil, maybe more, about five or six metres to the left of that. So it was a harder kick. I stood behind him. I remember going to hand him the ball and saying to Berkey, mate, just think of your country and think of the memorabilia deals you're going to get after you knock this over. <laughs> he laughed at me. He's done it. The hoot has gone. The Bledisloe Cup remains on Australian soil and Matthew Burke is the hero. And um, anyway, he kicked it and I've gone in and hugged him. I said I had him in a headlock at the bottom of this sort of big scrum of people. I said, mate, I want a, I want a slice of the pie. I said, I got you close enough. So, uh, yeah, we still have a joke about it to this day, but he was such a talented rugby player, mate. He was he was just graceful, man, just, and, but tough too. Like, such a, such a great player for me to start my rugby career with. He, he, uh, he, was the, he was the fullback for the Waratahs, probably the best fullback Australia's ever had, in my yes. opinion. And he, he, he gave up that position at the, at the, at the Waratahs, moved outside centre, let me play fullback and then coach me, you know, for my time at the Waratahs while he was there. Took me under his wing. So I'm getting 
coached by arguably the best fullback that Australia's ever seen. Um, so it was a great, a great introduction and transition into rugby to have that. Him as a mentor it was really cool. I guess still the most famous game of rugby ever played on this shore was the World Cup final, Australia versus England. Um, I don't want to mention the word. I don't want to mention the name. Johnny Wilkinson, eighty-two thousand nine hundred and fifty-seven people were there. It still does hurt. Do you still cast stings. your mind back? Does oh, it? Oh yeah, mate. Yeah, it stings. Wilkinson still in position here. This is England's chance. Back is there. Australia come through. Martin Johnson and England staying composed here. Here it is for Johnny. Has he done it? He sure has. Heartbreaker for the Wallabies. What takes you back there? Like, can can you just be having a swim or riding your bike and it pops up in your head, or or is there certain situations where you think about it? Doing podcasts and people bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> shit podcasters nah, asking just, shit just, questions. Just, just um, <laughs> it's, it's either that or, or you know, you meet a, a, an Englishman oh. who knows I was in that game. They love bringing it up, and but it, it seriously hurts. I just. And, you know, I catch up with a few of the boys from time to time, you know, and like I was with Justin Harrison a while back and we are talking about it, just little moments. Like we all have these moments in our mind that could have changed everything. I had this kick that, you know, I, I feel like I should have reefed downfield, but I didn't. I kicked it into touch. Um, you know, Lonnie Dekiri, he's like, mate, he goes, mate, we kicked... He, he took that... First try, you know, it's seven minutes in. I kick a ball to him, he out jumps Jason Robinson, who's, you know, four foot two and Lottie's yes. six foot four. We're like, why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> we only did it once in the whole game and we scored off it. Like, why didn't we do that again? You know, yeah. like, yeah, you know, good Justin Harrison's like, mate, I, I, you know, I, I fell for the dummy when Dawson made the break at the end to get Johnny into field goal range. There's all these, we've all got moments that we just think about that if only I'd just done that differently, you know, we could have, we could have, we could have won that game. and you know, like, Australia was so proud of us. We didn't have a good start to the international season. That year we got pumped by the All Blacks and then we sort of worked them out. So, you know, second blood as we got, we got beat by four points or five points or something. And, and I knew that we had them covered. I knew, I knew that we could beat them. But Australia didn't. So they were just hopeful. Mm-hmm. And so when we did, everyone was just so stoked. And, you know, we got beaten that, you know, double overtime in the Rugby World Cup. To get beat like that... Um, it just—it's heartbreaking, and 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 probably probably the thing that frustrated me the most was the people outside of the team who, who were so proud of us, and and that it's 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 them trying to be nice to us, like oh you know we're so proud of you, you did so well, so no we lost, and it goes back to that there's no moral victory in sport, so no no you look up 2003 Rugby World Cup it doesn't say Australia. They played so well and so gallantly and, you know, they were amazing. No, it says Australia lost yep. to England. And that just kills me, you know, and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one to stomach. But, uh, you know, look, I'm, I'll take nothing away from England. They, they, they hadn't lost a game in 15 months, you know, and they, they were, you know, rightfully um, crowned world champions in, you know, three. They, they deserved the title and they, they did what it took to win. I asked you earlier on, Matty, what you learnt when you became a rugby league star and everyone was telling you how good you are and you're winning, you know, you won a, a rugby league World Cup and, that you were heavily involved in. What do you learn about yourselves when you're sitting in the chain rooms after losing a rugby World Cup in double overtime? I don't know. I don't know how... I, I can't even remember how I processed it. I don't think... I, I really still don't think I have processed it. 
Like it hurts. It literally, I haven't shaken it off. Like Maybe we haven't. should move on. Maybe we should just skip that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know. Like, I mean, uh, it's just bitterness and, and an empty feeling um, that you try to sort of put to the back of your mind. I mean, I, I think of, you know, in, in rugby league, you know, like, like some of the greatest players never win grand finals. No. You know what I mean? So, uh, it's put the same in AFL. Same. I mean, it's, it's not. It's not a majority thing. That it's a minority, and so many people. I don't know. From the outside, think, oh, you didn't win a grand final. It's like, yeah. Well, <laughs> what do you think? Everyone wins one. Like, yep. <laughs> it's not everyone gets a prize here. It's like you're gonna be. There's so many things that gotta fall into place. That's why I admire great organisations that continually get back to finals. You know, the likes of your. Yeah, your Sydney Swans and your Geelongs who just played, or your Melbourne Storms, or your Roosters, and these yes. organisations that they, they've got that DNA right. I, you know, what, what makes me actually, what helps me is, is that I know that I'm not alone. You know, like I know Benny Elias really well. He hit the crossbar and yeah. just, you know, in '89, I think, grand final, hit the crossbar. The ball bounced off the crossbar. That goes over. They win the grand final. No extra time. No. Try and extra, and oh mate, it's just it's it's friends like that that have been, and we we suffer together, <laughs> you know. It's sort of, but yeah, I mean, I, I also have a lot of other good stuff going on in my life, so I don't dwell on it. Let's know? let's move I on. Let's, I, don't let's, want, I don't want people talk about it. Now, I'm, I'm not asking any more questions, Matty, about that. <laughs> no, <Done>. forget it. <laughs> the the passing of the Queen has gone around the world. I've heard a lot of stories about people, athletes, people I'm lucky enough to work with meeting the Queen. I read in your book, A Father, Son, Family, Footy and Forgiveness. And again, people need to read this book because it's... Uh, Maddie's telling us some stories, but he's only touching on what is in the depths and the pages of this book. But your story of meeting the Queen did have me chuckling. It really had me chuckling, Maddie. Oh, it was, scary. It was just probably one of the yeah, scariest moments. I got, I got sent the video footage of that the other day, actually. Um, and the Queen's, the Queen's in front of me and she won't leave me because she's, she's just asking me, you know, small talk. She's the world's best small talker. She was, <laughs> she's an amazing woman. And, and when you're in her presence, it's pretty awe-inspiring, you know, yes. like it's the Queen and we're in Buckingham Palace, so it's sort of adds to the mystique of it all. And, um, yeah, I just, yeah, it was a pretty special moment that I reflect on with great fondness. But I... Um, yeah, I got. You get all these instructions, you know, that you've got to do when you meet the Queen, and and one of them is not to feed the corgis. <laughs> and um, I, I was actually sitting down because I had a rib injury. So um, they, uh, the dogs came. Like, well, well, she's got a lot of corgis too. Right. Well, I mean, back then there was about eight or nine of them. Eight there or nine of them. More, I thought there was, there'd be just one or two. No, there was definitely more than six, less than twenty. <laughs> there was a lot of dogs. <laughs> And um, I just, I just, oh, we're in this room that was probably, you know, I don't know, 10 by 10 sort of size and having tea and scones as you do when you were meeting the Queen. And the Queen hadn't arrived yet, uh, but the corgis, they, they obviously know where she's headed. So they flew in before her. And I was sitting down, and they're little dogs, and I'm the only one sitting down. So they all come up to me, and I think I'd, dropped a bit of scone or maybe spilled a bit of scone or maybe just fed the dogs and they were loving it. So I had this I had this little throng of corgis in front of me and they're all sitting up like little kangaroos. If you Google corgis, they'll see pictures of them. They sit up like little kangaroos. 
But anyway, I just, um, the Queen came in and I've got this like audience of corgis and I'm like, shit, I've got to get away from the dogs. Like, she's going to know I'll fed them. So I <laughs> ran on the, I ran, I ran away from the dogs and um, she, uh, yeah, anyway, we set up a semicircle and she, she goes around and, and no shit, she, she spends five seconds with each person. Hi, hi, hi. Gets to me and um, does the old, oh, oh, you're Matt Rogers. Okay, so you're the one with the rib injury. And I just like ripped my rib cartilage. It was a pretty average sort of injury. So I was in a bit of pain. I couldn't really do too much. I'd actually been sort of on that tour. This is like week three. I did the, I did the injury in week one and I, hadn't, I couldn't train. And all the boys nicknamed me Kentucky because I, I wasn't doing anything on tour. I was just partying. We'd just come from Ireland, so I'd had a week on the Guinness having that time. Get to England and go and meet the Queen. And um, the, the, uh, yeah, the Queen's like, oh, you've got the rib injury. I'm like, yeah. She's like, oh, look, I, I just, can I strongly recommend just resting up and not doing anything too strenuous because I've had a rib injury before. And I'm like, I've, I've been like, I was, like I'm, I've been on an end of season trip for the week before. I've been drinking Guinness and partying my, the, my life away. <laughs> All the boys are standing behind her laughing. So I'm sort of like trying not to chuckle. Anyway, she, she kept asking me, you know, about Australia and had I been to England before. And I told her that I'd lived there when I was a kid. So she, and then, she, you know, we get into this conversation and mate, the dogs all start coming in and they all start sitting up like, like literally at her feet. And I'm like, oh shit, this is not good. <laughs> And she's looking at the dogs and she looks at me and she's like, oh, they, they don't often do that unless they've been fed. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know anything about that. I don't know anything about fed. Oh, lie straight to her, send her on her way. So you lied anyway, to the queen. Up, I lied to her and then, um, mate, this is, this, is, this is scary, what I'm going to tell you now. Okay. I mean, when I think back to what we were doing, like yep. it was frigging nuts, right? So... As the Wallaby squad, we used to travel the world, right? And on a Sunday night, every night we'd have what they call it. On every Sunday night, we'd have like a court session. Just the players, yep. no management, no, no one, just the players. So the 25-man squad, or whatever, we'd sit in a room. There'd be like some sort of punishment in the middle and we'd go around the room. And if you played up or you'd done the wrong thing, said something stupid in the press, you know, you've got to go and eat that chilli or, you know, drink that shot of chitruse or something, you know, just something stupid that you know it's going to hurt. But if you had something really cool, you could get a credit type thing, you know. Like so, you get out of jail free monopoly sticks. Like you get out of jail card, right? <laughs> so, mate, people, like, we can go around the world and just steal shit. <laughs> <laughs> We would go around the world and steal shit. <laughs> Mate, I remember Justin Harrison stole the front door knob of the lodge. Like, no shit. Like, in Canberra? In Canberra. He was dancing in the private bin nightclub with it up above his head. Like, <laughs> like crazy stuff, right? Anyway, we're in there and, and uh, one of the boys is like, oh, have you seen the spoons? And I'm like, this is in Buckingham Palace. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've seen the spoons. He's like, they've got the Queen's stamp on them. I'm like, yeah. He goes, you can't buy them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so anyway, we tried to, I, uh, yeah, I tried to, I tried to take some. And, um, mate, literally, as I got on the bus, oh, I had five spoons in my, six spoons in my pocket. I didn't try and take one, I wanted to take a few. <laughs> take the whole set. Souvenirs. Anyway, as I'm stepping on the bus, I get this, this big, 
Um, he was a dark guy, hand on my shoulder, he's about six foot five. So, Mr. Rogers, if you'd like to hand over the spoons, we won't make this an international incident. <laughs> so, oh, I handed the spoons over, got on the bus, I must have looked white, got back to the hotel, walked straight to the manager's team uh, hotel room, said, mate, this rib's not going to be any good for next week. We're meant to go to Rome the next week. I'm like, oh, just send me home. I'm no good. I just wanted to get out of there before anything blew up. I just, my, that was my first tour with the Lollabies. Like, imagine if, imagine if that came out. Like stealing from Buckingham Palace. That's front page It's hilarious. <laughs> oh, mate. Especially in Australia and in England again. and the convicts. Oh, and it's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. Anyway, it was, it was fun at the time. Now, more on Matt Shirley. Do not forget to check out our artist series, which is in season at the moment, where sport and creativity meets. Check your Howie Games feed. Go on. Do me a favour and give it a go for the likes of Paul Kelly on music and his love of cricket, Kirk Pengilly on in excess and surfing, Vance Joy, Vance Joy if you don't mind, on footy and writing hit songs, Jack Johnson, yes, the Jack Johnson on surfing and soul and so many more cool guests. Sports combined with music, acting, writing, being a movie star, TV star, radio star, this is what it's about. So I I saw this name, Vance Joy, um, but the, the thing is, like, you have a name, but it's like you, any name sounds dumb right at the start. So you say to your friends like, oh, I'm, first of all, it's like I'm going to perform some songs at the cafe. But, um, and there's like five people going. I made a Facebook event for five people. And then it's like Vance Joy playing at St. Edmund's Cafe. And it's like attending five people. And it's like, do you think you're a musician, mate? Like that kind of thing. Like, you know, like why do you need a stage name to do that? Like to play covers at the cafe. When people started singing along at the concerts, man, that really made a huge difference to me because it was, um, that became what the shows were all about. It was like coming together and trying to write these songs that were more or less full of love, you know what I mean? I mean, some are a little more cynical and social commentary, but in the end, they, I try to put a little love in every song or, or, or have it have a positive impact. And when people are singing those words back and it's uh, we're all doing it together, it, it definitely, it's the thing that, that gives me the fuel to keep doing it. That is the Artist Series in your Howie Games feed. Let's get back to Matt. Uh, your, your book's called A Father's Son, so it touches on your father a lot. Yeah. We, we've been, um, I think in many ways in the last 15 years, Matty, athletes have led the way in people feeling comfortable talking about their mental health, and we've had countless episodes here where people have spoken about mental health um, issues, whether it's Grant Hackett or, or Liesl Jones or, or a lot of athletes, Mitch Marsh with anxiety pressure. I, I don't know you well enough to ask you too many questions about the passing of your father, so it it, it might be easier if you just talk about what you're comfortable with and yeah, and how you reflect on it, if that's okay. Yeah, mate, I, I, I'm, I'm happy, to, happy to openly discuss that because I don't want it to happen again. You know, and um, yeah, losing my dad to mental health um, was probably one of the most confronting things that I've ever had to deal with, um, particularly in the position that I was in. You know, still seeing him as my hero and my idol, and, and me chasing him, wanting to be like him, and then him doing that, um, you know, taking his life was just. You know, at the age of the age of fifty, was terrifying. Um, it, 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 
posed all sorts of questions in my head. You know, what am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I, what am I, what am I chasing here? Um, I felt like, you know, I'd, I'd almost felt like I'd let him down. Like, did I not do something or, you know, is there something? Like, there was just, it was just the hardest time of my life. You know, I was, I was really fortunate that, you know, I was in an incredibly solid relationship with, with my now wife, Chloe, that she was there to support me, my brother and sister. Um, you know, my, my sister was in WA, so she was so far away. My brother had just driven to Byron, so he, he hadn't even, he wasn't in town, so I had to go and sit with my dad's body in this. Well, I went to, the, went to identify his body and I went and sat with him in the stairwell where he died and I just couldn't believe it. And the, um, the police officer came in a couple of hours back, he's like, oh, mate, I was going to see him again, you know, and he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, I get it, take the time, you know, and I just, I, I, I wish Dad was going through what he was going through now. And the reason I say that is because back then, it wasn't as prevalent, mental health. Nobody really understood it like we understand it now. Nobody sort of saw, could understand warning signs like we know now. There wasn't the talks about thing like it is now. And I feel I felt like he couldn't talk to anyone about it. And, and I feel like if Dad was going through what he was going through now, I would be I would have identified things. Yeah. Back then, I look back retrospectively and I think, oh yeah, I can see spots. But I didn't know what mental health was about then. Like I was mate, I was tunnel visioned on my career. And you know, juggling like a marriage breakdown and seeing my kids and, you know, I had all this crap going on in my life and I, and I, and I missed some stuff. But I only missed it because I, I, I think I didn't know. So, so your father was suffering from depression, Matty? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was suffering from severe depression. And, and I know that now... Well, I, I, I knew afterwards, after speaking to his doctor, uh, Peter Morris again, you know... And, uh, you know, I, I remember saying to people, why didn't you tell me? He goes, I can't tell you. I'm not allowed to tell you. Your dad didn't want me to tell you. He goes, it's illegal for me to tell you. Um, you know, his, his wife at the time didn't tell me. Like, what the hell is that about? You know, like, well, you know she's not legally bound to anything. And, um, yeah, we lost a pretty special human being to that insidious thing that is mental health. But... I, uh, I, it hurt me so bad. Like, I've, ne- I've never been crushed like that did, or oh, that did to me. Um, I, I had an amazing woman who was just there for me, you know, and Dr. Sharon Flahi from the New South Wales Waratahs. I was playing rugby at the time. And she just, oh, man, I don't, I don't think I would have ever got back to playing if it wasn't for her. Um, I, I didn't want to play anymore. I didn't want to come out of my house. I just went into this funk that was just so debilitating. Um, she would just come and sit with me and just talk to me at my house, sit on the balcony and just... She was never pushing, she was never demanding. She just eased me back, you know, one day at a time. And, um, yeah, but I just... Uh, I feel like, like a part of me died then. Like, I really feel like I lost sort of like, I, I lost the guy that I was chasing's approval. It's like, what am I going to do it for now? 
Mm. And like, why, why would I do it now? Like, the, that's the only guy that I want to say, well done, mate. I'm proud of you. I think you're doing amazing. Mate, he's the only one that, that's where it mattered. You know, like, I don't, not that I didn't love the people that supported me and the fans that, you know, patted me on the back and all that sort of stuff, but, but he was the one. And um, to lose it was, was tough. So, yeah, I, I, um, I'm grateful for the time that I had with him. I'm grateful for what he taught me. I'm grateful for how, for how hard he was on me. But, you know, uh, what, I miss, what I miss when he left, when he was gone, was just everybody shut down. So it wasn't just um, that I'd lost Dad. I lost the conversations about Dad from people. No one wanted to bring him up. Gotcha. You know, and, and it wasn't... So it was more than just... He disappeared from everywhere. You know, and I, I sort of say... Like, people say to me, now, is it all right to talk about your dad? I'm like, of course. Like, they said, oh, I loved your dad. I said, yes, I did too. Hmm. You know, like, we got... It's, it's a feeling mutual there, you know, like... He was, a, he was my, my hero. And, and he was my dad. And he... He was not the most uh, present father, I've got to say, like, you know, living in, through that era and working and playing and being a bit of a lad that he was. But, you know, those, I remember those moments that we had, you know, those special moments that were, were pretty amazing. Maddie, I spoke on this show to Joe and Renee Ingalls a couple of years ago um, about Renee's netball career, Joe's basketball career, and about their young fellow with autism. And they said... Um, they said back then you need to speak to Matt Rogers because we know him really well and he has helped us a lot on the way. Um, and your charity for ASD Kids, you've raised more than $3 million. Uh, a mate of mine a year and a half ago found out his uh, young fellow was autistic um, and he came, we had a chat about it because he'd listened to Joe and Renee. So he knew I was far from an expert, but he knew it, it, it had been explained to me some of the difficulties that were coming with it. Um, and it was a very difficult conversation your young bloke max from what i can read in your book is flying now but what have you learned about uh autism spectrum disorder Uh, people will listen to this that are going to find these out about their own loved ones what have what have you learned about it and and how to how to work your way through it it's a very private question i understand that oh yeah it's it's such a such a big question too it is oh what, what have i learned um Oh, that just—it's not—it's not a death sentence, you know. There's, there's a lot of joy that that comes with having a, a child on the spectrum. It's not about, um, you know, for us when we got that initial diagnosis and Max wasn't communicating, and I, I felt like I lost my son, you know. And and you know, I think I write about it in the book. You know, I feel like. I just lost him, and he just, I just turned into this like zombie in the house. You know, like it's a silly comparison, but in a zombie movie, they don't, they don't look at you, they look through you, and they just walking around. Well, that was our Max, you know, and I felt like it was, um, yeah, I just felt like he was gone, you know, like. But over time, and hard work, and early intervention treatment, and you know, we got our son back. I just felt, I just felt like. There was a that the light at the end of the tunnel started to get a little bit brighter. I just felt like we could, you know, make some progress. And we, we know I just never really got too far ahead of myself to, to not get disappointed. Um, 
Every, every autistic child's different. Every autistic child. It's like there's a saying in the, in the autism world, if you've met one autistic child, you've met one autistic child. Because <laughs> yeah, every one of them, everyone is different. Every, you know, present a different way. You know, some are, you know, brilliant at one thing, brilliant at another, you know, like it's just, you know, Max has got his strengths, got his weaknesses. It's like any kid, really, but he just, just his brain works differently. And, and I can see, like, Max's brain works. You can just see he is constantly, and I, and I feel for him because I can see him just sitting there on his own and he, you can just see his brain doesn't stop. He just, he's got no shut-off switch and that must be painful at times. Yes. Um, so we've got to find, for him, the things that engage him and get him involved in that. And we found a few of those things that he loves and, and it keeps him busy and his mind occupied with things that make him happy. Um, I'm, I'm grateful to have him in my life. He changed me. Now, um, if, if you said, I'll take you back 16 years, you can have perfectly healthy, typically developed baby, or you can have Max and take him Max. You know, like I'm not trading for anyone. He's um, changed us as parents, changed me as a dad, changed me as a person, you know, and just, it just ceased, ceased to become about me. I thought it was all about me so that I could provide the best for my family, but it's not about that. It's about others' life. And that's, that's really what I took out of it. Um, you know, you can, yeah, it's just, it's just a great feeling helping people. And we love the ability to be able to do that through our platform and you now Joe and Renee have been incredible, incredibly helpful uh, on that standpoint too. Um, we love those guys, they're like family to us and um, yeah, we're just trying to do our bit. You know, we're not gonna change the world of autism, but we'll change the world of a family at well, a time. As I said, mate, you've raised more than $3 million, so that, that's changing a lot of people's worlds. Mate, you, in, in, your, um, in the opening chapter, the prelude to your book, um, you said, I'll quote it back to you, all I can say for myself is that I am Matt Rogers, my father's son and now a father and grandfather. Congratulations on that, by the way. That <laughs> Thank must be you. outstanding. A flawed man who has always tried to do his best and that when it comes to trying to be better, I haven't finished yet. Um, how old are you? 46. 46. 46. And, and that struck me. We're similar ages. It actually really resonated with me because you get to a point in your life and, you know, you think you're going okay and, you know, you, you hope you're a good father and a good husband. But, but when you said, and that when it comes to trying to be better, I haven't finished yet, that as a bloke of a similar age to you really struck a chord with me. Well, I just feel like I'm at my best when I'm striving to achieve something, setting a goal and going after it. I, I don't want to be that... Oh, I, I'll... I'm content, don't get me wrong, like I'm content and I'm not like anxious about much, but like, there's always a little bit of anxiety about, you know, when you've got four kids. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but, but, I, but I don't want to just sit back and think, oh, I, you know, I'm all good. Like I, I love the fight, you know what I mean? When I say the fight, like going after something, you know, like setting a goal for business or, you know, the family or health, you know, those things actually make me feel alive 
And if I'm not striving to be a better person, then, then who are my kids going to follow? You know, who am I, where are my kids going to get their examples from? I don't want them getting off TikTok or, you know, wherever else, you know, they TikTok. get their information. Snapchat. <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm, I mean, it's, it's important to me to set a good example for my kids. Um, it's important to set goals and go after them. And, and I don't, I mean, I've read a lot of books and, and, I, and, I, and so many, and it's not about wealth, but, I, but I've read so many stories of, of, you know, great entrepreneurs or businessmen and, and so many of them don't even get started till they're in their 50s. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm just beginning. Like, I, I feel like everything that I've done was just a prelude to life. You know, I've got my, my grandson who is one, my eldest son, uh, Jack, he's 26 now. He just informed us a couple of weeks ago that he's a, we're about to have a, a granddaughter. Oh, congratulations. Uh, you know, in March. So there's so much to do, you know. Like, I, I and, and, yeah, I'm just, I thrive on that, give me something to chase, you know, like, give me something to fight for. And I'll, I'll love it. And when I achieve that said goal, I've got to send another one. Because even when you're like, I, I love to chase. I don't, like, you get it. You get to what you're chasing. It's like, yeah, all right. You know, there's no fireworks or no display. It's like, oh, what's, we, next? That, I what's next? You know what I mean? Like, I love that. You know, like, it just fires me up talking about it. Um, yeah, like, I'm, I'm, I'm on this golf burn at the moment. I'm gonna, I gotta, might, might have to chill that out a little bit because I'm, <laughs> I'm playing too much golf. But, <laughs> but I, I, I want to go on the senior tour. Do you? You know, like, yeah. So I'm like, I'm, I'm going to do it. You know, like, I'm, I'm, I play enough and I know I'm good enough, I'm going to do it. So um, I've got a, got a few years to practice, but it's exciting. You know, but I, like, I love that burn. I love feeling that, that grit inside to go and, and it not be easy. And golf is not easy. <laughs> so it's, uh, no, but in business too, you know, in, in, yeah, I'm sort of busy in, in other areas with that. And, you know, we've got a sports management business, we've got a civil business. Um, it just, it's just the grind. I love it. It's a, um, it's a very, this podcast, Maddie, right when we started it six years ago, it was all aimed at being about motivation and inspiration and positivity. Um, and that answer is, I should put that quote on the website because that that's exactly what you're telling me. We spoke a lot about kids in this, about your kids, about my kids, about kids in general. We always finish this podcast the same way, um, Matt, for those, and you've achieved success in sporting fields, now in business and and in your relationships for those youngsters out there that are listening to this that want to achieve some success in their lives, what piece of advice would you give them? If your friends don't believe in you, change your friends. I love it. Don't change your goal. Um, too many kids are influenced by, the, by their friends who tell them they can't do something or they, you know, what are they doing that for? Change friends, don't change the goal and, and, and be obsessed. If people aren't saying you're obsessed with it, you're probably not going to make it. It's a great answer, mate. The book is called A Father, Son, Family, Football and Forgiveness. Um, you said at one stage you, you didn't know if you could get through it. I'm really glad you did because it's such a valuable story 
for so many people, if for nothing else, that you try to rip off the Queen at Buckingham Palace. <laughs> um, <laughs> mate, congratulations on the book. I hope people get a hold of it and read it. Um, I know you're. once this comes out, you'll be in the midst of a big publicity tour. I hope it goes well. Um, and for someone I haven't met before, it's been a thrill because, as I said, you're the man. You and Wendell are the man that brought me to the Wallaby, so I really appreciate having a chat with you. Cheers, Howie. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, mate. There you go. Writing that book, as Matt said, was no easy task. Bearing your soul and opening your life to the world. That takes some real ticker in my mind. Thanks to Matt for being such an engaging, invested guest and just seemingly a genuine good dude. Well played by you for listening. Even more well played if you're one of those generous types that recommends the pod to your people to help it grow and spread. It means the world to me and the boys. It really does. Until next time, with the voice of cricket, Mr. Harsha Bogley. Peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. try.